Hey there, Michael Mahaney from the Pot of the Podcast. I've got a question for you. Do you identify as a dancer? If so, I have a group for you to check out. Dance Artists National Collective is the place for you. DANC, or DANK, is a growing group of freelance dance artists organizing in solidarity to create safe, equitable, and sustainable working conditions for dancers. DANK holds weekly community response meetings every Monday on Zoom, and they host tons of focus groups for all of the important issues facing dancers, such as wages, benefits, working conditions, equity, and negotiating. They even host watch parties and other fun events to help you connect more with your dance community. Head over to their website, danceartistsnationalcollective.org. That's danceartistsnationalcollective.org to learn more about Dank and to sign their solidarity statement. And for all the latest updates, follow Dank on Instagram at Dance Artists National Collective. coming to you live from Brooklyn. Well, you won't be hearing it live, but I am your host, Paul Hamilton. And today we are continuing with our deep dive into the Dance Now Festival, which usually happens at Joe's Pub, but this year they've taken it online and they're about, I guess, to start their third installment. The third installment starts on November 12th. Please remember to get your tickets, sign online, and get on and see what these fabulous people are doing. Dance Now offers an interdependent network of performance, creative development, and educational opportunities. Serving a diverse roster of multi-generational artists, they provide dance makers with paid performance commission, teaching, and residency opportunities throughout the five programs and throughout all the boroughs. Today, 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 we are very, 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 very happy to have the talented, talented tap dancer Orlando Hernandez with us today. You were just hearing a bit of his work in the background. And as we begin, he can tell you some more about that. But you can also find the video online on YouTube. It's called Pass Me Not. And it's Orlando just, you know, doing his fabulous work. So we're very, very happy to have Orlando with us. Orlando is a tap dancer based in Rhode Island. He has presented work at On the Boards, Space Gallery, the Granoff Center at Brown University, Movement Research at the Judson Church, Dance Now at Joe's Pub in 2019, at La Casa de Cultura Ruth Hernandez Torres in Puerto Rico. He was a 2019 recipient of the Fellowship in Choreography from the Rhode Island State Council on the Arts and the 2019 recipient of the Rebecca Blunk Fund Award 
from the New England Foundation for the Arts. And you can find him at www.orlyhernandez.com or on Instagram at pineapplejuicefrog. underscore ice frog. Welcome, 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 Orlando. How are you doing? Hey, Paul, uh, thank you so much for having me. It's, it's an honor to, to be here. Oh, yeah. You're very, very welcome. Thanks for being here. I don't even know how to start, where to begin. How are you doing? What is going on? You are in Rhode Island now. Yes. Uh, the pandemic is in its eighth month. We are still having to deal with, as artists, the fallout from the pandemic and how much it's affected our work and our livelihoods. But at the same time, there are some glimmers of hope. We have the Dance Now Festival, which, you know, decided to continue with the work. If anything, they have kind of like broadened how much they are doing. As a result of taking it online, they've been able, I think, to really showcase a lot more work out there and a lot more artists. And first of all, congratulations. You are one of the artists that had a new commission for the festival. So congratulations on that. Thank you. And yeah, so how have you been keeping yourself going throughout all of this time? Yeah, well, it's a challenge. I feel very fortunate in, in tons of ways. I've been able to see my family. They're in, in New Jersey and they're, they're holding up well. I have an amazing partner who, uh, who I live with here in, in, in Providence. I should say also this is the tribal land of the Narragansett, the, the Wampanoag and the, and the Poconocet uh, peoples known as Providence Rhode Island. And I've been here, we, we've been here in our, in our subsidized artist housing, shout out to, mm -hmm. to AS220. So living here in a, in a, a very stable setup, we, we were also able to spend some time in, in New Mexico, where Octavia is from, uh, with her family out there. And uh, yeah, you know, it's kind of, uh, it's, it's, it's still as day by day, just in terms of riding the, riding the, the, the waves of, you know, internal, external challenges, motivation, centeredness. And that's all, that's all a little bit uh, day to day. But definitely... I appreciate and, and admire Dance Now and some of the other presenters and, and organizations that have seen this as an opportunity to change the, the model, to embrace dynamic possibilities mm -hmm. uh, for supporting artists, for sharing work. And I feel like that's where it's at. You know, th there's a kind of lag internally that I feel where it's like trying to get with, get with the, the moment. But mm -hmm. one thing that, that has been happening pretty concretely is that a lot of stuff is... Uh, there's a lot of stuff moving to film. Yes. So that's, that's an interesting question. I hadn't done a lot of film work before, but I was, I was interested in it. So now uh, I'm excited for some of the possibilities that involve making work, making dance work and other work on film. So trying to lean into that a little bit. Was the commission granted before the pandemic happened? Yes. Yeah. So there was an original plan my timeline might be a little a little mixed up at this point, but there was an original plan to have a big celebration for the 25th anniversary in person at Joe's Pub, and I was uh, I was approached to make a piece for that. That was pre-pandemic, and then when the pandemic hit, there was a moment of reevaluating, taking stock, and then this new model was proposed, and then certain artists were were approached to to now make work for the 
the virtual sphere. And that was, and I feel very lucky to be one of the artists to, yeah, to get that opportunity. So pandemic hit, you apparently at some point, since you said the commissions was granted before the pandemic, so you had some idea about probably what you would be working on. I don't know how, what your process is like, but given after the pandemic and all the other stuff that came up because of it, the racial injustice and the racial protests and how did all of that lend itself to the work that you, I guess, have created, are creating, it will, will premiere coming up November 12th? Yes, yes, it will. So it's, well, it's interesting that this is kind of a, maybe a long, a long route to answering that, but the, the work that you showed at the beginning of the podcast. Oh yeah, um, don't interrupt you, but could you talk about that work at some point? Because I don't want to let people like forget about it before we move on. But I want you to also talk about that at some point, okay? But continue. Absolutely, absolutely. So that was a performance with Leland Baker, who's a, a great saxophonist based in Rhode Island. We started playing together this summer. And that performance was the first live performance that I did. It, it was in August. The first live performance I did the whole pandemic. And really one, only one of a handful. And it was in Roger Williams Park. It was presented by First Works Rhode Island and the Roger Williams Park Conservancy. And they were very careful to, to basically set up a, a socially distanced way of experiencing it. There were, you know, you've probably seen the, like the, the circles marked out on, mm-hmm. on, a, on the grass. And, and they did it kind of as a pop-up show so that it, there weren't going to be too many people coming. And, and that was really beautiful. It definitely gave me that experience, Leland and, and, and me both, that experience that, that I've, I think I've only really been able to have in, in live performance. I've definitely had some deep experiences at this point in on Zoom or, you know, not many, but but I have had some. But the the live performance, you know, that the with the in the park, with the sunset, with the mm. the vibrations and I mean th- that kind of thing remains really dear to my heart. You know, I feel like you can I can go to a certain place there and and they, I can feel transported yeah. and be, be there with people in uh in a different kind of time space breakdown kind of way. And uh, the transportation is different based on where you are, whether if you're in a theater or outside, it's a different, totally different kind of energy that's happening. Definitely, definitely. And I think percussive dance is very attuned to specific environments in that way, because you, you have the sound really being so space sensitive, so located in that space, whether it's a theater, whether it's outdoors. And what you what you're sending out, and what's uh, what's coming back, and the kind of community that exists in in that moment of performance feels, yeah, it feels unique to that time and place. And so, yeah, so when I was starting to work on this piece for dance now for film, one of the things that I was struggling with a little bit was the feeling of, and I I know some other choreographers and dancers who who have been facing this a little bit, but like not not necessarily really really having a lot to say every moment you know yeah. like, like kind of processing a lot trying to take part in social change right now go to the protests like call our representatives you know yeah. just like try and really just try and process what what's what's going on also and and be part of hopefully the the change that is you know, happening Mm -hmm. at the same time that it's kind of, that it's being literally beaten down. Right. But one of the, what, what I kind of came to was, was this idea that I had had for a while, which was to do this, 
there, there's a book called An Account of the Antiquities of the Indians by Fray Ramon Panay, this uh, Spanish friar who came, I think I was on a second voyage that Columbus came on, ended up in the Caribbean for, I believe, a number of years. And he was kind of tasked with doing research and starting to convert native peoples, so Tainos in the Caribbean. Mm. And the book, which is it's this little book that has, it's kind of all over the place. It's really interesting, pretty strange, and ends with an account of the, of the first conversion. And so you, you have the first Christian native person in the Caribbean. And so when I think about the history of Puerto Rico, history of the, the new world, we were talking briefly right before the, the podcast started about this kind of thing. But it's, I come back a lot of the time, or a lot to the, these kinds of contradictions that we hold. At, and I feel like I hold as a kind of new world Western subject. Yeah. And what, what I ended up deciding on was to investigate this through a kind of, not, not directly, but indirectly through this character called Mr. Bags. Mr. Bags, who's a kind of bag salesman who comes to a boy, and the boy has recently, his mother has been killed. And right in that, that kind of tender and vulnerable moment, Mr. Bags shows up and more or less pedals, pedals a bag to the boy to carry his, his mother in, to carry the bones and, and the memory of his mother in. And so that was a kind of way in for me to think about right now how we're trying to kind of reckon with what, what I feel are, are these deep problems that, problems. yeah, they, they, these problems that, that are at this point centuries deep, but are, are coming to a various kind of crisis points around the packaging of our experience, like the way that, that we, we make meaning together mm-hmm. and, uh, and basically what, what frames and timelines and, and arrangements of meaning we're working with and how those inhibit certain kinds of imaginative possibilities or certain social possibilities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the film itself, because I also know that, is, is it just, is it a solo? Is it a collaboration with, is there, are, are there other performers in it? I know given, I know some of Dance Now's guidelines about the, the perimeters you have about how much space you have to, to do this, that you kind of still have to work with some of the same guidelines of the stage that Dance Now has. How did you all, how do you navigate that with this character? Yeah, so, so I brought in actually my, my partner, Octavia Chavez Richmond, who's an actor, a director, writer, amazing artist. And so I asked her, she was down to, to, to work on this piece. And she has an amazing body of knowledge around physical theater, this really kind of specificity of physical languages in contexts that wouldn't probably first be called a called dance contexts but are very much uh, continuous i think with that world and also has a background in, and has been doing stuff in, in film mm-hmm. also so I, I brought her in and and uh we it ended up being really a total collaboration in the best way where, where we we i brought some ideas and then we really just kind of dug in over over a lot of sessions some about the the, the the underlying kind of personal research these questions of ancestry of how, you know, one of the, the guiding questions was how can we connect with our ancestors through foreign bags was kind of the uh, a driving question. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so, so it's, it's a duet and Octavia plays Mr. Bags and mm-hmm. I, play the, I play the boy. And so 
Yeah. So, so some of it was the, the kind of conceptual drawing that out. And then some of it was character building. Mm-hmm. So really seeing how Mr. Bags moves, how the boy moves and then drawing from some of these things. So some from tap dance and percussive dance, some from silent film, which tap dance definitely has a shared, I'd say a shared language with as well. These different ways that sound and gesture can be unhooked from each other and hooked mm-hmm. back together and are part of these different kinds of storytelling. Mm-hmm. And then we picked a couple of locations. One of the things that I checked in, I checked in with uh, Ariane about when we were dealing with the Dance Now guidelines was like, so does it have to be in one place the way the Joe's Pub stages or could it be in a couple of places that are similarly space constrained? And, uh, and so we ended up going with the second one. So we got a couple of locations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just kind of found some really interesting stuff. It's in the editing phase now. And so some of it, yeah, some of it's the kind of more choreographed dance. Some of it, there's a section that, that's a, a hand dance that we found that was kind of playing with these different objects. And some of it has text voiceover overlaid with, with what's happening. Some of it is, is in a more kind of uh, silent film kind of idiom. Yeah. So, so I, ultimately, I think I, I really saw it as an opportunity to, to, to play. To play. <laughs> to, to play, yeah. To play with film still is new to me to play with editing to uh to make a film with, with an iphone you know <laughs> all all of these things yeah so and let me get this straight you attended yale yes what did you what were what were your studies at yale so i studied english and creative writing i went there for for undergrad and uh yeah and i was studying mostly poetry Okay, so, I mean, am I making a stretch by saying that, uh, by assuming in some ways, that dramaturgy is a large part of, say, the development of your work? Yeah, I think so. It's interesting. I, 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 didn't, I actually hadn't even heard the word dramaturgy until a few <laughs> years ago. And then it, there was like one summer that like, I, I got involved with the theater project. Um, it was like a bilingual Romeo and Juliet that was taking place in, in Providence. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, I felt like I, I started hearing the word dramaturgy everywhere. And it's, it, uh, it's yes. <laughs> <laughs> and at first, was like a, a little mystified by it, and then realized what, like how how useful and, and rich a, a, a term it is. Mm-hmm. And hundred percent, it definitely is a way in for me to, to thinking about yeah the possibilities of storytelling, the possibilities of, of meaning, which to me the the possibilities feel rich and endless. And something like like tap dance, I think, is is one of the one of the many things that I love about it is the way that it has so many points of contact with pretty much every form and set of possibilities you could think of. Its field of meaning mm-hmm. is it's at once like located in the body in a very in a very intimate and immediate way, mm-hmm. and it also is is vast and webbed. You know, all the it, the way it touches music the way it touches visual languages, theater, it's different ways of operating in improvisation. Mm-hmm. And for me, like dramaturgy is a way that there's like the kind of intuitive, there's a way to, 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 to follow the, the kind of improvised and intuitive logic, yeah. which is to me in a way, maybe the core of things. And then there's also this, this whole world of analysis, I guess, or like digging in research, trying to articulate the kinds of meaning that are possible also. And, and sometimes I, I could get a little more, I could get a little too caught up on that one and lose yeah. and, and need to come back to just the, the mm-hmm. way it feels, the way it feels in, in the body, the way what's being expressed, the way it sounds. But to me, yeah, it's all part of that, that rich uh, fabric. 
Yeah, which is which earlier you were you were speaking and you said tap dance and percussive dance. And I know that tap dance lies somewhere in the percussive dance umbrella. And mm-hmm. the percussive dance umbrella takes on a whole different types of thing. But I also thought about the word percussive. And mm-hmm. when I think about creating work now or the idea of virtual dance, which, you know, we're all trying to do something on Zoom and how much in a small space you can create this percussive expression. You can mm. create the sound and movement and experience and storytelling in a very, you know, so kind of it's like the ultimate, like, or should I say the precursor to the TikTok dance? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it has a way, but it, my introduction, you know, and I think most Westerners, their introduction to tap is in a very kind of showy, you know, Broadway, dancey kind of way. And yeah. so I don't know if you can talk to that about just what it is to be by yourself in a space, mm. creating that kind of sound, creating those kinds of, that kind of energy. Yeah, no, that's, it's an amazing question. It's, you know, I, I think... You know, to to speak to to tap dance a little bit, it's like, you know, some people like, uh, well, I, I think like like Savion Glover, who's mm-hmm. who's uh, a huge inspiration for me. Sometimes he and I was just talking actually uh, to Leland, my my friend, who's the who plays saxophone in in that that video. He was talking about it with jazz music, and even the name, you know, it's like some people will like Nicholas Payton has advocated for calling it Bam Black American music, mm-hmm. right? instead of this, this name that is part of its, like the, the use and dissemination of it for, I guess, you know, like white imperial purposes. Exactly. <laughs> no. yeah. um, and, and, and tap dance is definitely deep in that history of like multiple circulations kind of happening at the same time yes. and it, it meaning different things to different people. Mm-hmm. And I feel deeply fortunate in my life to have been centered through a, a study of tap dance with people like Bunny Briggs, who was uh, a, a remarkable tap dancer and human being who I got to spend time with when I was when I was young. And yeah, people like Bunny, uh, Jimmy Slide. Diane, did you ever work with Diane? Diane Walker, yes. Yeah. And actually, since moving to Rhode Island, one of the cool things was that I got to, to reconnect with her in, in Boston because she's been holding it down in Boston for a long time. A long and, uh, time. Oh, Yeah. And also carrying on a really deep tradition of tap dance and tap dance teaching in Boston that goes to uh, Leon Collins. Slide was in Boston. Diane has been there for a long time. Now that there's a younger tap dancer named Ian Berg, mm-hmm. who, uh, who runs a company called Subject Matter that I dance with. Um, mm-hmm. And he's, he's very much carrying on that tradition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so definitely there's a way that when you go to dance, yeah, it's, it's such a deep and interesting thing that you brought up. It's like when you're alone in a space, and and it it feels different day to day, you know. It's 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 an ongoing relationship. It's an ongoing relationship that sometimes needs to be re that I I need to reground or or kind of reorient and remember some of the things that people have told me and that I've learned. And a lot of the time, it really does come down to it's this this I think of it as this contact. It's like this contact between your your feet and the, and and the floor, and it holds 
I think it holds the possibilities of for this intergenerational, for this deep, yeah, the embodiment of of something beyond yourself. And when I think about what improvisation is, when I think about African diaspora, Puerto Rican diaspora, I, I think it's like sometimes you're connecting with something that's not that's not directly there. Yeah. And it's uh you're participating in some way in a in a in something that's shared that's beyond yourself. And that to me is is a deep kind of there's a there's a kind of faith or a shared community in that. Yeah. Um, and the way that that plays out kind of day to day or moment to moment is it it changes. It changes and it, it's it, I continue to learn and, and realize how much there is to to learn. But but I mean therein lies the richness of, of what you do and I think as live performers what we do is you know, when I asked earlier about, take for example, you know, the the chaos going on around us and how does that really affect the work that we do? And, you know, I guess in some ways the question seemed like, oh, you don't really have to go into the studio and make something that says, oh, this is all I'm feeling. But as human beings, we take whatever is it we are feeling mm-hmm. <laughs> into these spaces with us. And, and whether or not we choose to make obvious, you know, statements about what's going on it does end up in our work i think mm-hmm. so you know despite everything else i think we have very little control mm. you know over that i remember and i you know i don't mean to you know go on with my story but uh, no, please, years, please. <laughs> years ago i i was and i still do work with a choreographer his name is reggie wilson and uh, oh yeah yeah <laughs> and we okay. ended up going to senegal to perform and we had a performance and you know it's you know it was it, it was hard but at some point we finished performing and i think we got off stage at around midnight or maybe later because the the festival went a little later than we thought and as i was leaving the stage uh this man came up to me and you know grabbed me and shook my hand and he said you you make me so proud to be african mm. and you know, he said this to, mind you, someone who grew up in Jamaica and then, you know, made my way to New York and somehow made my way to Africa. Um, mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I think a little while ago that I, I really kind of dissected the whole thing and thought to myself, uh, oh, it's that is how the conversation keeps happening. And I feel like that's how, in some ways, there are ancestors keep on speaking is through mm. our bodies mm. and and when we choose to really listen with care and in some ways i felt somehow that i was given an opportunity to go back to africa to be with my ancestors and you know to tell them that everything is fine <laughs> like mm. somehow you know the, uh, we had made it all the way across you know, through all the turmoil, all the stuff, and I actually somehow made it back to Africa and was bringing back dance. Mm. <laughs> so, it's beautiful. It's, yeah, yeah. So, so when I when I see the work that you're doing, I definitely feel that. I definitely feel like yes, tap is what you're doing, but you're channeling something that's far more world-reaching, far deeper, a, a truly a conversation with something deeper and older. Mm. Yeah. So I don't know I, if you, if you I, can, if yeah. You, yeah, talk to that a bit. Yeah, well, I had an experience that I, a few years ago that 
that, that your experience just reminded me of. And it was, I, I got to do a performance residency in Puerto Rico. And uh, so I, I grew up going there to see family. It's, it's where my, my dad is from. Often feeling this outsider, insider kind of, kind of thing, having grown up over here, speaking mostly English. And then it's been a kind of, I'd say, ongoing process in my life to, to find those roots back. Mm-hmm. And one of the really interesting things. So, so I, when I was there, I was working with this amazing, uh, so it, the, the residency was called La Espectacular and it was at La Casa de Cultura Ruth Hernandez Torres. And there's an amazing scene of dancers, physical performers on the island and off the island right now doing really amazing work about the body and space and really kind of located in the social struggles and really kind of, from what I've learned, just really kind of adding a whole kind of almost like adding a whole whole areas of consciousness to the to the these larger questions and historical processes mm-hmm. about colonialism about mm-hmm. about ownership of land bodies and, and space on the island and elsewhere and so i was coming to that and i got to work with an amazing dancer choreographer named Javier Cardona who was you know a, a kind of a mentor to me while i was working on in this residency and one of the experiences that i had was that i was to me i was there being like Oh, it's just like, I'm kind of nervous. I have never shown work here on the island. Like, I want to be accepted. I want, you know, all, all these things. Like, I'm kind of my own, like, mixed diasporic mm-hmm. insecurities. And I was sharing tap dance, you know, which is something that is not, not a Puerto Rican form, right? And, uh, and there's not a lot of tap dance on, on the island. But one of the things that was very cool was that people really connected with it. And when they saw what I was up to, it felt, from the kind of echoes that I got back from from folks there, like it felt like it was part of those same inquiries and those same assertions. And part of this is uh, is through exactly what you're saying through through the African diaspora that brings bomba and plena um, and these forms to into Puerto Rico and makes tap dance this resonant form there. So it's not so much even primarily about it's it's something different than the the U.S. Puerto Rico than that kind of dominant like. Uh-huh. Discur- discursive relationship it's like something else mm-hmm. is able to come into existence mm-hmm. and so to experience that there was deeply affirming i would say and, and orienting and I've, I've carried that with me since because what it did was it gave me a sense of yeah of of these like you were saying right these geographic transtemporal kinds of conversations yeah, that, that also that exists, but not abstractly, like very like in in a very immediate way. Yes, um, yes. And to experience that kind of echoing uh, and that kind of listening, and to learn from from what folks are up to there, and be grounded in in and start to ground myself in that, I'd say was yeah one of the the, the most deeply orienting experiences. And it, and it was through tap dance, which which on the surface again would, would maybe not be the thing that you would expect to connect with with Puerto Rican forms, but again there was a, a different kind of, I'd say, listening and conversation. And I love the way you put it, right? Listening with, with care, I think you said, yeah. right? And, and showed me some of what's possible with that. So I don't know if that starts to, to answer your question a little bit. But. Actually, it does. It does. <laughs> and, and on that note, we're going to take a little break to get a little wording from our sponsors, okay? We'll be right back. 
choreographers out there, raise your hand if you could use more time, space, and money to create your work. Okay, don't take your hands off the wheel. Uh, they all took their hands off the wheel, Michael. I got, I got <laughs> ladies count, two million hands and car crashes. The two million choreographers with cars in New York City? Yeah, right. That's where, we, <laughs> that's where we've gone wrong in the first place. Now, totally. we all know that the answer is every single choreographer out there could use more time, space, and money to create their work. So enter the CUNY Dance Initiative, or CDI. CDI is a residency program that opens the doors of City University of New York campuses to professional choreographers across New York City's five boroughs. They can offer you free space to create, teach, and perform, as well as financial support. Now, CDI has already helped over 130 local artists right here in New York City launch new work, develop new audiences, and establish new relationships within the performing arts community. And you know what? You could be next. Actually, Michael, we've interviewed a ton of CDI resident choreographers over the years, I think, uh, during your tenure and before. And I will say they're just always such innovators in the dance community, and they're a really diverse collection of artists. Yeah, so many incredible choreographers. You and I had the chance to talk with Tiffany Mills last year. Mm -hmm. We'll never, of course, forget Jess's awesome interview with 2019 Bessie Award winner, tap dancer Caleb Teicher. And a while ago, we talked to Efrata Sherry, who's a B-girl and a house dancer. We talked to Annabella Lanzu, uh, Benny Royce Royan. We even got to interview the director of CUNY Dance Initiative, Alyssa Alpine. And you can find all of those interviews and more at potada.com, as well as potada on iTunes. Now, missing this once-a-year application to be a CDI resident is heartbreaking. So do not let it happen to you. Make sure you jump over to the website, cuny.edu slash danceinitiative and join their email list. And check out the homepage for application alerts, insider ticket discounts, and so much more. And if you just love dance, make sure you follow at CDI underscore dance on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Okay, back to the pod. Hi, and we're back with Orlando Hernandez. And I guess I just wanted to get into your early life training. I guess, how did you... Because, you know, the, the, the question usually is, you know, so how did you start dancing? You know, like, mm-hmm. usually, you know, how did you, you know? And I guess for some reason, my question is usually, at what point did dance come to you? When was the first time you, ex- you encountered something that you would, you know, call dance that mm-hmm. really kind of spoke to you? Mm-hmm. How did that happen? Yeah. Yeah. Well, when I was little, I, uh, I would shuffle my feet around a lot and, um, and I would do that for hours. And my, my parents were like, Oh, you know, like that's, that's cute. Or like, that's, <laughs> or like, that's fun. Or, you know, they, they weren't like jumping on, jumping on it or something like they, they thought it was just something I was doing. And then when bringing the noise, bringing the funk came out on Broadway. So it was in 1996 when is when I saw it. So I was six years old and mm. my parents took me to see that. And I've thought since that I'd probably already seen Savion on Sesame Street. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so that was probably already kind of, uh, you know, influencing me. Or I was already imitating something that I saw probably. But, uh, but when I saw, when I saw noise funk that I'd say was the, the first time that I, and I feel lucky just to, there was, it was a, a fortunate time to, you know, that show coming. I, I, I know a lot of people, for whom that show was was a, a big well a version of what you're saying kind mm-hmm. of dance come dance coming to coming to you and yeah so it was after that that I started taking lessons taking classes 
but I'd say it was it was that when I when I saw that that I I um in a kind of semi conscious way because I, I don't know what a six I don't know what exactly I was thinking as a six year old but uh-huh. um, but it was a it was a deep experience and so you see this show you go I want I want to do this thing I want I want I want to <laughs> take you know tap dancing and say flash forward to now what has that journey been like as far as from your experience of this thing as a six-year-old to now, how, I guess I'm trying to think of the outlets that you have that encouraged you along the way mm. to really see this as a way forward. Yeah. You know, uh, the different kinds of encouragement, uh, whether it be access to studios, you know, access to different kinds of teaching, different kinds of philosophies about tap. Because you seem really, what can I say, open. Or you see, it seems like you see TAP as a very open place for discussion about, mm-hmm. so say, what, how you can use it. And I guess that has to come, I feel like that comes with education, the kind, what you've seen, the kind of different dances you've seen. Because I, I, I see what you're doing as boundless. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, for that <laughs> you know, so yeah, I guess I I guess I guess the, the bigger question I'm asking is what has that journey been like? And if you can talk to that from the six-year-old boy to now. Yeah. yeah it's well, a lot. It's, I, I know it's a crazy I mean, question. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It, I mean I was lucky early on to have some great teachers. I think was was the most important thing when I was younger was to I felt drawn to this there's a joy a physical joy you know and freedom I think to tap dance that some people transmit and you see it when when some certain people dance mm-hmm. and to get to study with people who promote or who give life to that life and some of the first teachers that I took class with were um, Lane Knapper at Broadway Dance Center and then Margot Hammond in Hoboken. Yeah, and then by the time that, that I was like a early, like early teenager, I was dancing with a company called Tap Kids, directed by Lisa Hopkins. And that show, it was a, a family theatrical tap dance show that I got to tour and meet other, you know, we we're all pretty much teenagers. Mm-hmm. And it was super fun. I learned a lot about just kind of performance, about the, the the fun grind of like, you know, going from an airport to a hotel to a theater. And so I was really lucky to get that experience when I was young. And then when I was, I can't remember exactly how old I was now, but I'd probably around 14 or 15, I started dancing with Andrew Nemmer, a great tap dancer who was living and well, from some, some different places, but was was living in New Jersey. And was teaching in New York. And so I connected with him also at Broadway Dance Center. I got to take with him, with Michelle Dorrance, and started to dance in uh, Cats Paying Dues, which was Andrew's company. Mm-hmm. And that definitely something changed during that process. There was a kind of depth and attention to detail and attention to detail in process. You know, it's where I started kind of keeping notebooks of, of things that, that tap dancers kind of said and, and things about like what, you know, what this tradition what really what what it means to study a tradition i think is, mm-hmm. is, is i don't know if i if i thought of it then but you know and and every chance i got to be exposed to someone like 
you know, Ernest Brownie Brown or LaVon Robinson or Harold Cromer was an amazing tap dancer legend who was uh, around New York and around all the festivals there and would come to performances and, and the hang too, because it was like, it was, you'd perform and then, you know, we'd be at like a diner for hours and just kind of hanging, telling stories and hearing those stories. And so I was super fortunate to be exposed to the tap dance as a community, as, a, as a, a, an active, vibrant community and uh, some of its elders, some of our, our elders. And a lot of this was through Cats Bang Dues and, and through my being around the, the scene in New York. And then, yeah, so then what else? I, I ended up stopping tap dancing for a few years, which was not the plan. That kind of happened when I was at college. I think I was going through some of my own kind of Did you, was, was, there access, access, yeah. was there access at Yale for you? to practice there was but it was disconnected from from what i had been a part of so i think that was one of the one of the main things i did take some time off before college and i was doing some traveling and and really focusing on dance and yeah and, and some dancers who i you know like uh, michaela marino lerman in new york and sean jackson lisa latouche joe wiggin you know, beautiful dancers and people. And then, yeah, so I, th- I think I felt a little disconnected from, from the scene. I, I think I was also kind of going through my own kind of questioning and ended up, I think, internalizing some of the values of a place like Yale that, that is, is so deeply kind of steeped in mm-hmm. kind of white, like, canon and a way of operating that, that I think tap dance that actually is, is not, I would say, Yale, like most of, of what I was supposed to Yale, did not actually have the tools to, to affirm or understand tap dance. And so I ended up kind of signing up for some other systems of value. That, that kind of comes back to the, the foreign mm-hmm. bag, the, like the Mr. Bags guy. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I was also playing, playing music during that time. I was playing drums and I uh, was playing in a, kind of, in a jazz trio, a jazz combo for 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 a couple of years and so was also just learning about that which is yeah and then you know i i ended up after some time after college and i ended up in providence rhode island and here i after a couple of years after several years of not dancing i felt that that was not right like internally there was I, I i had been kind of pushing it to the side for whatever reasons and then there was a process of giving that making space within myself to really like listen to, to what I had been missing about it and to, and to give and to let that part of me or let that get to, yeah, to make space within myself for those things to, to live as mm-hmm. fully as I wanted them to. And so it, that was a lot of practicing by myself, a lot of time in the studio, really just kind of, kind of getting back to basics a little bit, like what, you know, what does a tap shoe sound like versus what it's, a barefoot sound like how does it feel different like how, how do you dance differently mm-hmm. how do i dance differently when i'm barefoot on on a wood floor versus when i put on tap shoes what are the different languages and ways of imagining and and i started to do some theater here in rhode island and, and in particular some bilingual theater through a collaboration between a theater here called trinity rep trinity repertory company and, and rhode island latino arts there's an organization i've done a lot of work with here and yeah, and there really started to learn about uh, theater, and that's when I started to learn about dramaturgy. Really, and it was it was more through theater than than dance specifically. And so, yeah, I got started to learn about you know some of the possibilities of of storytelling in those kinds of frames. Also, the kind of theater as a social, it's socially transformative potential 
speak to different communities, bilingual communities, Latinx, Latin American communities in, in, the, in the state. And yeah, and through all of this, I, I feel like, yeah, really learning some of, uh, yeah, some of what's possible, but at the same time, continuing to listen to that internal compass, try and get deeper into what I feel like, I guess what I feel like tap dance is for me and to, to keep returning to that. So some of these other spaces have been great learning spaces, but have also not been the, the thing that feels like the, the most oriented around that. So, so when I, I connected with Ian Berg, who I mentioned earlier in Boston and with started dancing with subject matter, this is now a couple years ago. And that was after some years of being away from the, the tap dance world. Mm-hmm. And that felt, that was deeply affirming for me to kind of see the work that they'd been doing in Boston to build a community there mm-hmm. to kind of perform with and share with other tap dancers again. And made me realize how much I'd missed that. But, but along the way, yeah, interested in, you know, I've kind of picked up like a little, well, not like when I was younger, I didn't do really other types of dance. For me, it was all about tap dance and even tap dance, I tended to think of more as music at that point. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, so, yeah, so, no. <laughs> yeah. So, so dance at this point though, is, is like, I've also, my eyes have been opened a little bit and, and it's why something like dance now is so cool because it's, for me, it's an eye on, it's an eye opener to what types of work people are making, the, the kinds of conversations happening in contemporary dance worlds. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I guess. I could be wrong about this, but it seems like TAP is having, you know, a spotlight, you know, on it more these days. You know, Michelle Dorrance and Dormitia, Ayudal, you know, just to name a few. Yeah, yeah. And sort of like this long, you know, waited for acknowledgement of women in TAP, oh, you yeah. know? So we're seeing, we're seeing it now. And I hope, I, I guess I, my question is, how do you feel about, say, the future of tap? How do you feel about, I, I always feel like, you know, there are these hierarchies in dance. You know, you have ballet, then you have modern dance, then you have this, then you have that. And the craziest thing is that that is how they're funded, you know, da, 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 and how particularly supported you feel by the dance community right now before pandemic during the pandemic, yeah. What's it been like for you to get work, to make work? Mm. Do you feel that there's an opening now in the dance world to like tap in more and shine more of a light on it? Mm. So before the pandemic, I did feel like there was a rising kind of focus mm-hmm. being put on tap dance. And it's, you know, someone like, I mean, not really someone like, really just she's really one of a kind uh dormisha who mm-hmm. you mentioned mm-hmm. is as you said long overdue for for you know whatever amount of attention she wants exactly. you know, I, don't, I don't know if she wants <laughs> but, I, yeah that you know but deserving of all any and all accolades and attention and mm-hmm. just like space for for her to to make work and for people to learn from her and so that makes me happy for sure you know, the, the work that she, Derek Grant and Jason Samuel Smith, directed by Dormit Show, but a, a show called And Still You Must Swing. Mm-hmm. And it's to show that that everyone should should see if they can. I, I've only been able to see it virtually. And so that's one of the good things about the pandemic, I guess. You said, and still you must swing? And still you must swing. Yeah. Oh. Mm-hmm. There's a, a quote from Jimmy Slide. So that's kind of one. And you mentioned Ayadeli 
Mm-hmm. Adeli Cassell, also an amazing tap dancer who, uh, who has also been getting attention, much deserved attention. Michaela Marina Lerman. And so, yeah, so, so that, that is a, definitely a good thing. And one of the things that I, I think is cool about that is that it's folks who've been doing their thing. Like, mm. and it's not so much that they're like, I don't know what I'm trying to say. Like, it's not a, it, well, it's, it's always weird when, when something is framed as a discovery. Cause it's not, mm-hmm. it's not a discovery, right? It's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, it's, 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 it's not like a, a needing to conform to something in order to get something. It's, I guess the best way it could go down would be a, a, a kind of shift in thinking, right? Like you mentioned that, that kind of hierarchy and instead of tap dance or, or, or tap dancers trying to make their way up that hierarchy, mm-hmm. it would be, it would be better if, if the hierarchy kind of flipped, you know, yeah. and, uh, <laughs> And, and I do think that's happening to, to an extent that with social change and a kind of change in perspective, a change in consciousness, mm-hmm. there, there is maybe a growing space and growing tools for, you know, for dance and theater goers to, to understand and appreciate the work that, that folks have been doing. And at the same time, there are definitely things about tap dance at this point. I don't necessarily understand like what, what is happening in the tap dance and dance world right now. And I think that that's kind of more in the, in the pandemic time, like how we are adjusting to this very kind of image based social media culture is, is, is confusing to me sometimes. Yeah. Terribly. Right. And it's not, I, I hesitate to say it's necessarily good or bad or, yeah. um, but it, what's in the process of transforming, I think is maybe yet to be understood. Yeah. At least by me. Absolutely. Like it's not, I, I, I don't understand it yet. Yeah. I, I know for and myself. How, where tap dance fits in. Yeah. So, so I, I think, you know, and then in terms of the, the more kind of institutional nods to tap dance and kind of being programmed more. And I think that's cool. I think it's cool if, if it's what folks want and they feel like they can continue to explore it, you know, stay, stay centered and oriented. I think with me, one of the things that I'm still doing is just learning. I feel like I, like I, since I took some years off from the scene, I'm in some ways just kind of catching up also on learning what, what folks have been up to, seeing all the, the young and amazing tap dancers that are around now, seeing what people are, are thinking. It's also a different moment because a lot of the, the elders of, of the dance have passed and they're, they're, they're new elders, but I, I do think it's a changed world a little bit to be a young tap dancer now versus 10 years ago versus 30 years ago versus, mm-hmm. and so I'm curious to, to keep learning how tap dance is being carried yeah yeah i mean based on just speaking to you i feel very i feel pretty positive about it because it seems like there are thoughtful talented young artists grappling with that and really trying Mm -hmm. to bring tap into the i guess 21st century i guess or using it in ways to to ask questions and start different kinds of conversation. Mm. So that that's I feel like that's a positive thing. And I guess with that, I mean, we're we're going to be drawing the interview to a close. And so I guess my question then before we go is bright outlook for the future as far as TAP is concerned. How do you see going forward with all the challenges? Yeah in a kind of community way mm-hmm. or bigger way or personal or? In the community, um, given, you know, it's going to be, a, I, I think, a pretty rough winter and mm-hmm. performance opportunities. 
dry up because we don't have outdoor spaces to go to. I mean, a part of the practice is also sharing and also witnessing mm. in person, yeah. you know, with people, yeah. with bodies around you. So I guess I, I'm interested to see, I guess, you know, next coming months, how we as a community battle that. How do, how mm. do we put on and, and still allow ourselves to be in a creative conversation? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Hundred percent. I, I I would say I do think in my experience there is a a different energy that is transmitted when you're in person mm-hmm. with other tap dancers learning. Mm-hmm. It's it is different than a, a a virtual class in my experience. It's I guess just to say that yeah I I, I hope that we can find ways to gather and um, on a more and then on a kind of optimistic note I would say that tap dance is you know, when you, when you learn about say, tap dance, say like as an archive, you know, a lot of the, the tap dancers we study and look up to past before we were around. And one of the ways that we interact with them is through stories, mm-hmm. through videos. And some of these are, are limited for what, you know, all the reasons there, there are some, some of the most incredible tap dancers, there's a tiny amount of footage of them, if any. Uh, yeah. um, and that kind of combined with the idea that, that tap dancers at some points to were kind of in and out of work, you know, there, there were, there were cultural shifts, there were shifts in, in performance, in uh, what was popular. And so you learn about tap dances. It's not, it's not a linear thing. It's not like that, you know, it started here and then people just had kind of ongoing careers and, mm-hmm. you know, there were people who were fame, who were stars, who were like famous stars, who then kind of fell off the map for people. Yeah, and and that, and and not to say that's like a good or a bad thing, it, it, but it's just like that. I think maybe contained in the history of tap dance is a way for, of understanding a non-linear way forward. I guess is is mm-hmm. is what I would kind of be hopeful for that that we already have some of maybe the conceptual tools for we're operating in a, a not a not linear way forward because I think we don't know, you know, things we don't know. We don't know. Yeah. I, don't know. I mean, yeah. I personally feel that as a performer working in contemporary neo post dance, modern dance, I yeah. feel in some ways, I don't want to say particularly prepared for mm. uh, a little chaos but I feel like mm-hmm. we've always kind of operated under that kind of circumstance when you're kind of making work out of nothing mm. in the bodies. There's a certain survival thing that we have that I think lends itself to us a bit of not knowing mm. and having to be okay with not knowing. Yeah. You know, and, and I think sometimes... It's in that place of not knowing that like some real beautiful things can happen. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah. And that kind of vulnerability, right? That kind of vulnerability. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So with that being said, with that being said, I want to thank you and thank you and thank you and thank you and thank you once again <laughs> for sitting down for this talk, for just making yourself available and for sharing your wonderful, wonderful stories with us. Okay. Uh, well, thank you. It was, it was really my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Orlando. And I just want to say thank you to the listeners of Padidu. Remember, you may join the Dance Now Festival, which is in full swing. 
They have a new installation starting for November. That will be on November 12th. And you can find all of that online at the Dance Now website. Once again, thank you very much and so long.